Lord, we graciously seek your face. Because the only reason we can approach you is because you've made the way, because you allow it. And I thank you, Father, that we can, can talk and we can fellowship and we can laugh and we can make mistakes. But you're still here and you still love us and you give us these wonderful opportunities to hear your voice as we study your word. You tell us that your spirit will be our guide, that he will be the one who leads us into all truth. And I ask, Father, that that would be the case tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we looked at God's miraculous delivery of Elisha, and then all Israel from the Syrians, which, I mean, there was some really cool stuff, you know, the, 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 in the city of Dothan, and surrounded by uh, the forces of Ben-Hadad, and Elisha's servant wakes up and is like, Master, Master! And Elisha's like, yeah, we're fine. We got more than they do. Such a cool scene. Uh, early in Elisha's ministry, if you remember, there was a Shunammite woman. And every time Elisha had passed by her house, she was hospitable. She would invite him in uh, to eat, essentially. And over, after a while, she said to her husband, you know, let's, let's make him a guest room. So they do. And he eventually says, well, you know, what can I do for you? Because you've shown me such great kindness. And she says, oh, I don't need anything. I'm good. And then Gehazi says, that's uh, Elisha's servant. Well, she doesn't have a son. So Elisha looks at her and says, you know what? A year from now, you'll be holding a son. No, my Lord. No, my Lord. She said, don't, don't lie to your, to your maidservant. A year later, she had a kid. Quite a bit of time goes by. And when the boy's older, he's out in the field with his dad. And oh, my head, my head. Dad carries him back. And the kid dies. So the woman, who's never named, we should give her a name, Betty. So Betty says, I need to go see the man of God. She goes and tells her husband, I need to go see the man of God. And remember, her son is at home, dead, lying in the guest room that Elisha would frequent. And so Betty goes out to the field, and her husband George goes, what's wrong? Nothing. I just want to go see the man of God. It's not a feast day. It's not a new moon. No, I, I, everything's okay. I just need to go see the man of God. Okay. So off they go. She gets to the man of God, and they find out what's going on, and Elisha's really actually surprised because God hadn't told him what was going on. He sends Gehazi said, and Betty says, nope, I ain't going without you. So Elisha goes, all right, let's go. And he gets back to her house, and he lays on the boy and um, walks around the house. He does this seven times. Was it seven times, right? I'd have to look back, but it was something like that. And the kid comes back to life, and he hands him to the woman. Now, we know then that because of this siege that was we we read about ending last week he sneezed seven times what did i say no elijah walked through elisha walked around three times and the boy sneezed seven times um but there was a siege that there was a huge famine in the land and before that took place god told her to leave so we're in chapter 8, verse 1. Elisha spoke to the woman, whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman 
arose and did according to the saying of the man of God. And she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines seven years. And it came to pass at the end of the seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistine and she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. And the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. And it happened as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is her, this is the woman. And this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. I think we can make a pretty good guess that her husband had died at this point. Um, Most scholars, some scholars think the boy was probably 10 or 12 when he died and then was raised back to life. Um, And then we have at least seven years of famine, so we're talking the kid could be 17, 18, 19, somewhere in there. And her husband was old to begin with. Um, And so you're looking at, you know, 17, 18 years have passed since uh, she first gave birth to this kid, at least, at least. Uh, And so since she's there pleading for the land with her son, the, the guess is that her husband had died. And when the king asked the woman, verse 6, she told him. So the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until now. So I I just love this scene because she goes back. Gehazi is there telling the king, uh, you know, stories of all the great things Elisha has done. Remember, Gehazi kind of wanted the spotlight. He wanted, he wanted to get the clothes and the money and all the goods when uh, Naaman came and was healed of leprosy. And, and so here, my guess, and this is wild conjecture, this is not in scripture, but my guess is the king had asked Elisha to come. And like, yeah, could you come and tell me, you know, the great things God has done? And Elisha's like, no. You know, I'm just, from what we've picked up of Elisha's personality, I'm thinking if he was, if somebody gave him that request, that would be his response. And in that time, um, Gehazi's like, well, I'll, I'll go. Right? I, I want to go talk to the king. And so he did. And while he's regaling the king with stories of Elisha and the work that God has done through Elisha's life, he gets to the raising of this woman's son, and hey, she walks in. He's like, king, there she is, there she is. And he asks her, and she confirms it. And he goes, well, what do you need? And she goes, I want my land back. And he goes, not only am I going to give you your land back, I'm going to appoint an officer to go with you, which is another reason for us to believe that the husband was dead. Uh, I'm going to appoint an officer to go with you to make sure that not only do you get your land back, but for the seven years you've been gone, you get all the profits from the land. Now imagine you're a squatter. And you see this perfectly good field in an empty house. And you see the whole family packing their donkeys up and, and heading out of town. Great. I guess free house, right? Free land. And you spend seven years, right? And it's a time of famine and, and you had the siege going on and there's war and all this. But whatever the case, you've worked the land for seven years, probably made some money. And the woman shows up and there's an officer of the court and he looks at you and says, okay, now you have to leave and all the money you have, give to her. Bad day for that guy. I don't know why. <laughs> Just throwing it out there. Um, But that's what happens. And this is what popped into my head. You have 
what she asked for. And then we see what she actually got. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, we read, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. I mean, that's not a promise of wealth and prosperity or anything like that. Um, but it's a very bold statement that the Holy Spirit has put in here. Because I have a pretty wild imagination. And there is nothing I can come up with that's even close to what God's actually going to do. That, that's pretty crazy because like he's already told us about this ginormous city of, made of pearls and gold streets and, and the sun not needing to be there because of his glory shining out. And, and, and I, I just I sit here and I go, you know, I talk about my chicken fried steak tree. I haven't brought it up in a while. And I'm thinking, wouldn't that just be awesome? And that, that's not even anything. That's, that's nothing compared to what we're probably going to get. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I think these scriptures and the account we read of this woman here teach us something important. She asked for her land and she got so much more. God is the God of much more. As you read through the Gospels, you will come across, and I should have given myself a reference for this, because uh, I actually thought about it earlier in the week and I just didn't put anything down. Uh, but God, uh, Jesus, on multiple occasions, um, uses that phrase, much more. And what he usually does is he tells a parable and makes a comparison and then the, the teaching goes, how much more will God? Right? So remember the parable of the woman and the unjust judge. Right? And, and this, guy, this guy, he didn't, he didn't fear God or have regard for man or respect for man. And she just kept bugging him and bugging him and bugging him. And finally he said, even though I don't fear God, nor do I have any regard or re respect for man, this lady won't leave me alone. So I'm going to give her what she wants so she'll go away. And God says, how much more? Jesus tells us, how much more will your father give you when you pray? It's a parable about prayer. How much more? I just, I just need my land back. I just need my land back. No, that's not good enough. I'm going to give you your land. I'm going to give you someone to go with you so you don't have to worry about dealing with the people that are there. I'm going to give you all the proceeds from the last seven years. I'm going to give it all to you. And I think sometimes we miss out on the much more because of our lack of faith or our hesitation to ask. But here is the reality. Yes, God wants us to ask him. He wants us to ask him in faith. But this is not about earning it or begging for it. Our gracious God wants to bless us more than we even think to ask for. And that, that is mind-boggling to me. And again, it doesn't mean money or land or cars or whatever fancy whatnot you might put on your list. But... 
I think we can only scratch the surface because of our limit, the limitations we place on him, the limitations of our own faith. But we have an infinite God who knows the number of hairs on our head, that not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from his knowledge. And we are told, ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will, refine, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And we come to him like paupers. You know, it'd be really, be really great. This morning, um, my wife's alarm went off and I woke up. And then I wouldn't let her get out of bed, so I had to drive her to work. <laughs> I, I snuggled with her so she couldn't catch the bus. And she's like, oh, I can't, we can't do that. I'm like, I'll drive you. But I, I never went back to sleep. I just kind of, I kind of laid there and uh, my mind was going a thousand miles an hour about various things. And I finally, I just heard the whisper of God. He goes, why don't you just ask? Because I'm stupid. Probably the reason. I'd rather worry about it than bring it to you in prayer, I guess. But our good father, he wants to give us good gifts because he loves us. And those gifts probably aren't going to look like what we think, you know, because I think of a good gift. Wouldn't it be great if I got home and there was a check for $200,000 in the mail? It would be great. I'm not saying it wouldn't be great. <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. Anybody out in the world who wants to write me a check for two hundred grand, i will take it. Um, I think of the people that, you know, spend $250,000 on a Lamborghini. Clearly, you don't need your money. Just give it to us. We'll, we'll do something much more useful with it. Um, but yeah, God just, he wants to, right? He, he, he wants to. Verse 7. Well, then Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick, and it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Hazael, Take a present in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him in every good thing of Damascus, 40 camel loads. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? Uh, I do find this really interesting because it was just a couple chapters ago when Ben-Hadad sent a, a large military force to try to capture Elisha. And now he's sick. Now he needs something. Now he's the man of God. Now he's saying, you know, Father, I, I'm your son. You know, can, can you tell me? Am I going to get better? Um, it's, it's curious, right? Difficult times always reveal the truth about us. Uh, but your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, sent me to say to you, shall I recover? And Elisha said to him, go. Say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. Now, was Elisha lying? No. Elisha was not lying, and we're going to see why. Then he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, why is my Lord weeping? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with the sword, and you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. And Haziel said, but what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? And Elisha answered, Jehovah has shown me that you will become king over Syria. 
Then he departed from Elisha, came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would surely recover. But it happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face, so that he died and Hazael reigned in his place. That escalated quickly. So this whole thing, it's interesting to me because as we see the scene unfold, Elisha, you know, yeah, he's going to recover, but he's really going to die. And really, here's why, because you're going to kill him. And Hazael's like, you're going to do all these horrible things to the people of Israel. I mean, could you imagine how disgusting it would be to take a pregnant woman and rip her stomach open and rip the baby out of her stomach as, as an act of war? I mean, that's just so ridiculously and unnecessarily violent. And Hazael says, I would never do that. I would never do that. No, 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 no. I would never do that. What are you talking about? I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not that, I'm not a dog, right? I'm not that gross. And Elisha said, yes, you will. And he goes home. And I, I wonder, I just wondered, was Hazael, did he have a hard time sleeping that night? Was he bothered by the things Elisha told him? Was he filled with dread over the possibility? Did, did he sit there and just deny over and over again that he would never, ever, ever do this? And eventually he fell into a fitless or fitful sleep. Right? Hard time, rolling back and forth, night sweats. And he wakes up the next day. I'm going to prove Elisha wrong. I'm going to kill my master and I'm going to become a good king. What? Right? He pleads with Elisha. I'm not that kind of guy. And the next day he shows that he is that kind of guy. And this is what I think we can take from it. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Too many people think they can't. Oh, I would never do that. I'm not that kind of person. I would never do that. Until they do. I made a rule, kind of, a long time ago. And I, I don't know if it's a good rule, but it's biblical, I think. And that is, I will never believe myself above a sin. I, I will just never say, I could never do that. Because I know the evil in my heart that I probably could. I don't want to. It would horrify me. I would be broken and cause pain and, and destruction if I ever did. But I'll never believe I can't do it. Because if I believe I can't do it, I'll let my guard down. And I don't want to do that. Matthew 15, 18 through 20, Jesus taught us, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a person. People in our world, many in the church, want to believe that people are basically good. 
that we have this inherent goodness in us. There's even people out there who falsely teach that the reason Jesus came is because we're so good that he wanted to save us. I think they've skipped the book of Jeremiah completely. Because in Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Remember years ago, I was talking to somebody and we were having this discussion that they were like, you know, people aren't evil. People are basically good. And I'm like, I think I first I started with Romans uh, 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? That's kind of the nice way to put it. Um, no, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, we all, we all kind of sin, but, but people are basically good. I'm like, brother, I said, that is, that's a lie. That's a lie, from, that's a lie from the devil. And really, it's a lie from your own heart because our heart is evil. Our hearts aren't evil. What are you talking about? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful. Some translations say wicked. Above all things, desperately sick. Why do you think when God promised the new covenant up in Ezekiel, uh, is it 30? It's in, in the early 30s in the book of Ezekiel. When God promised the new covenant, he said, I'm going to pull out the heart of stone and give you the heart of flesh. What, what's, the, what's the thought there, right? Well, my heart's not made of stone. Well, we're being figurative. God doesn't literally pull out our heart, but what does he do? He takes the heart that is sick and evil. And he wants to give us a heart after his own. Because our heart is wicked. If there's anything good in us, it comes from God. And it comes from our relationship with God through Christ. And I don't come to God because of how good I am. I come to God through Jesus for his sake and according to his mercy and grace. And I cannot come on my own. And it would be foolish to try. I don't say this to make you feel bad about yourself. Did anybody in here, were, were you, any of you unaware that you were a sinner before tonight? Is this news? I say this because we have a way out through our Savior, Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection are all we need to be saved, forgiven, and set free. We sang that song that I mentioned, and I talked about how it hits me every time I sing it. All of you is more than enough for all of me. For every thirst and every need, you satisfy me with your love and all I have in you is more than enough. I had to sing it in my head so I could remember the words. Don't pretend that your sinfulness isn't there. It's okay. I mean, don't dwell on it. Don't pursue it. Don't live in a life that is practicing sin we are called to a life of holiness but we don't get there on our own and in order to deal with it well we have to deal with it we talked about this in sunday school last week that people are afraid of their pain people don't want to deal with their pain uh, my physical therapist oh she didn't get mad at me uh, but she was doing this acupressure thing on my leg. It was kind of weird, uh, right above my, my, my knee. And as she would push in this spot, my muscle would start to flutter. 
And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> she goes, yeah, you can feel that, right? Yeah, and then she'd do it again. She goes, you're keeping the muscles above your knee tense because you're afraid of the pain of that knee moving unexpectedly. She goes, you have to loosen them up. She goes, it's going to take you longer to heal as long as you do that. Because sometimes you have to go into the pain in order to get better. But the beautiful thing, and this is what we talked about in Sunday school, is when we go into the depths of our pain, God meets us there, and he pulls us back out. Mm. Verse 16. I know you think I'm going real slow, but the rest of this chapter and the next is pretty quick. Now in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. Isn't that fun? So we have Joram, the son of Ahab, who's the king of Israel. Then Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, he has a son. And here it's Jehoram in my Bible, but it's the same name. There's two of them because Joram and Jehoram are intermixable or interchangeable. Um, but one is the son of Ahab. One is kind of like the grandson-in-law of Ahab. We'll, we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but his son in Judah, Jehoram, begins to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. So sorry, no, Ahab's son-in-law, meaning the other Joram was his brother-in-law. I got that. It's in my notes. I don't know why I'm guessing ahead of time. Um, yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Joram went to Zaire and all his chariots with him, and he rose by night and attacked the Edomites, who had, oh, excuse me, who had surrounded him. And the captains of the chariots and the troops fled to their tents. Then Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. And Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram, all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of Kings of Judah? Yes, they are. And we're going to get a lot more detail in this particular Joram's life when we get up to, um, I think it's Second Chronicles, but when we get up there. So Joram rested with his father and was buried in the father, in the, uh, with his fathers in the city of David. Then Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So yeah, some, some wonky stuff. But long story short, um, this guy, this Jehoram, becomes king in Judah. He follows after the way of Ahab. He had married Ahab's daughter. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 reminds us, Do not be deceived, because bad company ruins good morals. And I am always... Uh, we, we've seen it so many times. We saw it with Ahab. We're, we see it here with this Jehoram. We're, we're going we're gonna to see it other places. Uh, Ahaziah doesn't do much better here in a moment. Um, that they marry women who are dedicated to worshiping these false gods and they lead their husbands astray. And it's really easy to blame the women. But why were the kings violating the law of God to marry women who were idol worshipers, who weren't even technically Jewish, especially in the southern kingdom. This, this, was, this was against the law that God gave to the kings. I think it's back in Deuteronomy 16 or 17. And every time, right, and it started with Solomon, so it's really hard, but Solomon loved many foreign women, as you remember, and they led his heart astray. 
And that's what we see here. And then the marriage uh, that Jehoram has to this woman is really going to turn out poorly later on. Two kingdoms, Edom and Libna, successfully revolt against Judah, which means now we start to see... Um, it's not against Judah. Is it against Judah? Yeah, it's against Judah. Sorry. Um, we start to see the decline uh, because they're now going to start losing. Um, their borders are going to start getting closer and closer and closer because they're losing the, the favor of God uh, over the kingdom as a whole because of their sin. Verse 25. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, King of Judah began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. So Athaliah was Joram's or Jehoram's wife, who was Ahab's daughter, right? And that really isn't all that big of a deal, but I want you to remember that name. We're not going to get into it tonight, but you need to keep that name in mind. And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Now he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. King Joram went back to Jezreel to recover from his wounds, which the Syrians had inflicted on him at Ramah, when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel, because he was sick. So this really, we're just going to lead right into chapter 9. Um, but Jehoram dies. His son Ahaziah takes over. We get his mother's name, Athaliah, mentioned. Um, I really loved that name, right? And I don't know if Leah remembers this, and I can't remember if you were pregnant with Hannah or Lydia. Was it Hannah? And I was reading through Second Kings, right? And I was—I hadn't been a Christian all that long, a, a few years. And um, we come along. I come along. I'm like, what about this name? Because for some reason, I stopped. Right? And early, I'm like, Athaliah, what a pretty name. And later on, when she murders all her grandchildren, I'm like, no! <laughs> Can't name one of our kids that, apparently. Um, I know, I kind of let the cat out of the bag. We'll get to that in a couple chapters. Joram gets injured. Ahaziah goes to visit him. And so now they're both in Jezreel, which was one of the fortified cities in Samaria. Verse 1 of chapter 9. Do we do verse 1 of chapter 9? Gosh, 37. Yeah, we'll do this. Won't take that long. <laughs> lies, lies and betrayal. I'll try not to let it take that long. Verse 1. And Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready. Take the flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. Now when you arrive at that place, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him in an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have appointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not delay. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting. And he said, I have a message for you, commander. And Jehu said, For which one of us? And he said, For you, commander. Then he rose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. You shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. 
So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. Those were two previous uh, dynasties in the northern kingdom who God absolutely obliterated. The dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door, and he fled. Jehu came out of the servants, or to the servants of his master, and one of them said, Is everything okay? Why did this madman come to you? And he said, Ah, you know the man in his babble. And then they said to him, A lie! Tell us now. So he said, Thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him and on top of the steps, and they blew trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. Wow, isn't that interesting? So, Elisha gets a word from the Lord. He tells this kid who's part of the school of the prophets, says, go tell all of this stuff to Jehu. And when you tell him, run. So he goes and he does exactly what he's told. And as soon as he tell him, he runs. Because Elisha knew the violence that was going to follow Jehu's anointing. His friend asks him what happens and he lies about it. They call him on it and he tells them the truth. And they're like, great, you're the king. Woohoo! Wait, loyalties changed pretty quickly back then, didn't they? One thing I want to point out in verse 6, then we'll move forward, is that he arose and he went to the house and he poured the oil on his head. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord God, or Jehovah God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And the reason I think this is interesting is because at this point, the people, especially in the northern kingdom, had forsaken God completely. They were worshiping idols. They wanted nothing to do with him. But God hadn't forsaken them. In his mind, they were still his people. When you look at all the prophecies of sending them into the captivity in Babylon, or first Assyria, and then Babylon, Assyria for the northern kingdom and Judah for the southern, he never stops calling them his people. Even in the depth of their sin. And I love the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. The promise that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. Hebrews 13.5 and Romans 8.39. We should take comfort in this. I have given him many reasons to leave me. And he never has. Verse 14. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram had been defending Ramoth-Gilead, he and all Israel against Hazael, king of Syria. And King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. And Jehu said, if you are so minded, right, he's speaking to his friends who just declared him king. If you are so minded, let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it to Jezreel. Right, so he looks at his friends who just said, yeah, Jehu's king. He goes, all right, here's the deal. Other people now know what's going on. Don't let them leave because they're going to try to run ahead and warn the king. So Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel and Joram was laid up there and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and he said, I see a company of men. And Joram said, get a horseman, send him to meet them and let him say, is it peace? So the horseman went to meet him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. Now, basically what that means is when the horseman came out and he says, is it peace? Joram's answer was no. What 
have you to do with peace? Right? The answer was no. I am not coming in peace. And you have a choice. You can get behind me. Or something bad's going to happen. And so that guy was like, yeah, I ain't stupid. So he jumps behind the, the group with Jehu. And uh, so the watchman uh, says, sorry, turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported saying the messenger, this is the end of verse 18, went to them, but is not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman and the same thing happens. Is it peace? Jehu answered, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported, well, the next one's not coming back either. And then he goes, and the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. How do you tell that the, who it is just by their driving? Then Joram said, make ready. And he made, his chariot was made ready. Remember, he's wounded, recovering. Then Jehoram, the king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Jehu and met him on the property, notice, on the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. Anybody remember Naboth the Jezreelite? In 1 Kings chapter 21. Ahab was hanging out in Jezreel. He saw this vineyard that belonged to a guy named Naboth, the Jezreelite. And he goes, Naboth, you know, I'd really like your vineyard because it's close by. I want it to be a vegetable garden. I'll, tell you, I'll buy it from you or I'll give you a better piece of land. Naboth said, no, it's my family's land. I can't do that. So Ahab throws a toddler fit and, and his wife, Jezebel, the sweet young lady that she was. What's wrong with you? You're the king. You want that vineyard? I'll take care of it. So she gets the people to hire scoundrels, accuses this guy of blasphemy, and they murder him. Don't forget Joram's descendant. And where do they stop? Next to the field of Naboth. I don't know about you, but I think God invented irony. Okay, obviously God invented irony. He invented everything. But, you know, I... I anyways. Then Joram... Uh, oh, sorry, verse 22. Now it happened when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace as long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many? Your mother's a witch and a whore. How are we going to have peace? I, I, I'm thinking if I was Joram, I'd be a little offended. <laughs> I'd have words with anybody who said something like that about my mother. Actually, I'd have blows with anybody who said something like that about my mother. Uh, but yeah, he goes, your mom's a witch and a whore. This isn't going to work out well for you. And Joram got it, right? Verse 23, he turned around and fled. And he said to Ahaziah, treachery, Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Jehoram between his arms. And the arrow came out his heart and he sank down in his chariot. And Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, pick him up and throw him in the tract of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I were riding together behind Nadab, his father, that the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this plot says the Lord. Now therefore take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. Just, just incredible. All to fulfill the word of God. It doesn't end there. When Ahaziah, king of Judah, verse 27, saw this, he fled by the road to Beth Hagen. 
And Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblim. Then he fled to Megiddo and died there. Uh, Megiddo was a valley, and I can't remember which gate it was outside of, um, but it was the refuse gate. Uh, I just can't remember what side of Jerusalem it's on. Um, if you look it up, you, if you look up a good Bible map, you'll find it. Uh, but it's what we call uh, the Valley of Armageddon, right? Everybody thinks Armageddon is, is the end of the world. No, Armageddon is a place where some events that are pertaining to the end of the world will happen. But Armageddon itself is not the end of the world, even though it's a really good movie with Bruce Willis and a giant asteroid. Um, so he fled there, and it's where they dumped all the trash and burned it. So it's not a pleasant place to visit. Uh, and his servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in the tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah, had become king over Judah. So Ahaziah, remember, he's the son of Athaliah who was the granddaughter of King Omri. Ahab was Omri's sons, making Athaliah, Ahab, and Jezebel's daughter. Anyways, that means that Ahaziah was part of the house of Ahab. And the vengeance that Jehu was to carry out was to utterly annihilate the house of Ahab. That's why Jehu had him killed. And if you remember, he became king at 22 and was only king for a year. So this, he was only 23 years old. He was evil. Like I said, we're going to see more of Athaliah later, sweet lady that she is. Oop, what did I do? I turned too far. Verse 30. Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. Then as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri? murderer of your master she knew it wasn't i i can just picture this woman so full of herself thinking he ain't coming in he ain't touching me right is it peace zimri and he looked up at the window who's on my side who so two or three eunuchs looked out at him he said throw her out the window throw her down verse 33 so they threw her down and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses and he trampled her underfoot. So apparently the fall didn't kill her. It just bloodied her up real good and he decided to let his horse stomp her to death. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank, you know, killing people's hungry work, right? He, he, he takes care of, uh, of, of two different kings and probably several of their guys that had hung out with him, comes into the city, kills this other guy's grandma and he's like, ah, you know, I need a sandwich. So while he's inside eating and drinking, uh, he says, go now, see to this accursed woman and bury her for she was a king's daughter. She was the daughter of Omri. Uh, he was a pagan king, but a king nonetheless. So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of the hands. Therefore they came back and told him, and he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, on the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse on the surface of the field in the plot at Jezreel, so that they shall not say, here lies Jezebel. Long story short, the prophecy was, when she dies, there's going to be nothing left of her. There's not going to be anything to bury, so there won't be any marker for her grave. Um, yeah, just incredible. Just 
absolutely incredible. Uh, next time, I do, I do appreciate the Unix throwing her out the window. Um, next time we will get more into Jehu's life and some of the good he does and then some of the not so good. I mean, Jehu actually starts off decent, not good, but decent, fulfilling the word of the Lord and trying a little bit, very, very, very little bit to follow his ways, but he doesn't last that long. Um, and we may, time permitting next time, get into Athaliah's wickedness. Um, and you'll see, you can definitely read ahead, but you'll see why we didn't name our daughters that. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we approach your throne of grace with hearts full of gratitude, recognizing the boundless goodness and mercy you shower on each of us every day. Your love, God, is like the sun that rises, unwavering, never present in our lives. We give thanks to you, for you are good. Your love endures forever. We thank you for the breath in our lungs, for the beauty of your creation that surrounds us, for the gift of life itself. We are humbled by the countless blessings you bestow upon us, both seen and unseen. Thank you for your hand of protection that guides us, for your wisdom that directs us, for your patience that endures our shortcomings. We are ever so grateful for the ultimate demonstration of your love and mercy through your Son, Jesus Christ, who redeemed us and made the way for eternal communion with you. God, with great appreciation and thanksgiving for every good thing that comes from you, we offer this prayer of thanks. May we continue to recognize your divine grace in every moment of our lives. Amen. And there we go.